Hello everyone, I'm Joe Lapore. I head up the Foresight team for North America as part of our newly formed global Foresight team. Welcome to Future Imagined, a brand new and exciting Foresight podcast powered by MGS Insights. Today, we're going to be diving into the first of the five shifts, adaptability. And it sounds like a very big and overarching topic. And we're going to break it down into two sections. The first is really around us as individuals, how we're flexing to the chaos in the world and the constant disruption. We're going to dive into the human drivers and the needs that are behind some of those things that are being enabled by individuals today. We're also going to look at how that's actually coming to life in the environment around us. So what are some of those innovations that are being enabled by human ingenuity and the outcome of the disruption that we're seeing in our market, both inside of the retail space, as well as more broadly in the industry. And I'm so, so excited to introduce to you the guests that we have joining us today. I'm Chris Albrecht, editor-in-chief of TheSpoon.Tech, an online daily news publication that covers the convergence of food and innovation. I'm Siggy Hale. I was previously an academic studying the brain and then jumped into the private sector where I now work with Alpha Diver out of Cincinnati, Ohio, continuing to apply neuropsychology to understand human beings in the world. You know, one of the things that we've really recognized coming out of 2020 is that on the one hand, we moved incredibly slowly to adapt to the situation around us. We've recognized that our infrastructure, the platforms and the systems that we have in place are very linear. They're very regimented. We've recognized that our routines are not affording us the discovery or the ingenuity that we would like them to. We're really leveraging hybridization and multi-purpose to work seamlessly around some of the linear systems that we have. And then on the flip side, in the positive, there have been a number of opportunities that have come out of 2020 as this sort of commencement of the next decade. It's come from individuals who are seeking opportunity in a crisis. Companies that have had adaptable systems in place that they're turning on or they're accelerating, doubling down on those investments. New companies investing in technology or accelerating their capabilities. And we've seen this preparedness and agility that's really paying off. We can move faster and we can diversify our investments and we can change the way that we think as individuals for the betterment. So if disruption is predictable, if chaos is sprinkled into our lives, how can it be used to our advantage in how we create innovation, how fast we react to things, how proactive and preventative we can be, and what we need in place to enable that for plan B, plan C as a company and as individuals? Scientist and policy analyst Vaclav Schmil warned of the inevitable threat of another pandemic in 2008. So the question really isn't how we could have prevented COVID-19, it's how we could have strengthened the systems that we have in place to prepare for it. Siggy, how are individual lives changing in these times of constant disruption? What are people needing and doing to better cope with this? Well, I think for me, the second part of that statement, what are people doing and needing to cope with this, is where my background and expertise sort of aligns. To get at this, we basically have to look at a foundational aspect of brain function. One of the brain's primary jobs is to help us make predictions about what's likely to help us and hurt us in the world. The way that we do that is we build predictive models, little pieces of software that tell us what something is, what it means, and what we should likely do about it. 
The first set of those predictive models that we developed, you could think of as our instincts. Eventually, in evolution, we developed this capacity for what we would call episodic memory. So now I can accumulate all of this personal experience in my memory, and I can use all of that information to make my own predictive models about the world that are really idiosyncratic, that are related to me and the things that I've gone through. These predictive models are really, really important because they allow us to efficiently work through this sort of executional task of our daily lives and to be able to survive. The problem arises is when those predictive models start to fail, and they always do fail because the predictive models are always based on incomplete information. We're always a little bit flying in the dark. A social network or a team also holds a set of predictive models that we share as a collective. They're what really bind us together. We could think of this as culture. When they're working, we experience this stability, we feel very in control, and everything is going along very nicely. When they start to fail, all sorts of things start to go sideways. But what happens is that we separate as a social unit and we individuate. These little autonomous perceptual units that start to be able to gather all kinds of different information. And then ultimately we cultivate a bunch of new ideas and we try to bring them back to the collective social table and work through the process of updating our ideas about how we should organize ourselves as a team or as a society. One of the things I'm really excited about in this moment where our sort of recipe for how to organize ourselves as a collective has been so challenged and so disrupted and we're all kind of now scrambling to come up with these new ideas, but that we can also self-reflect and learn to better understand the machinations of how this process works so that we can do it more fluidly in the future. The way it unfolds now is sort of akin to the way a teenager sort of rebels in their family structure when they no longer align with the predictive models of their family unit. And it's very tumultuous and akin to a kind of revolution. But if we learn to do this in the way it's done in science, we can get much better at proactively adapting and constantly challenging our models and constantly looking at the way that we organize ourselves and doing the work of evolution in advance of being forced to do it. As a non-neuroscientist, what I got from that in particular was that a crisis can really spawn creativity by necessity and I guess by desire and this, this human need that we have to come up with new solutions and to break away from those predictive models that have failed us, but also through a sense of empowerment and that empowerment comes from what you've created yourself and as well as what has been afforded to you, for example, in an organization. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that actually comes to life. So, Chris, I'm going to hand it over to you. We've seen some absolutely incredible innovation when it comes to, in particular, technology, but the retail space, the food space. There's been some real tremendous ingenuity and transformations that have been taking place that are really accelerated at the moment. Yeah, I have to follow the brain scientist. So now anything I say is going <laughs> to, you know, pale in comparison. I It was funny listening to your opening remarks. The one thing I thought that struck me, and I hope I'm not misremembering, right? Is this the idea of adaptability, right? And the ability to change things. There's a prediction that by the year 2025, 21.5% of all grocery sales in the United States are going to be online, e-commerce, which is huge. It's massive. I think it was like single digits last year prior to the pandemic, right? Like it boomed during the lockdown. It sort of leveled off, but now people have developed a new habits. And among those are, you know, grocery shopping online. I buy my fish through an online site called CrowdCow. I was pushed into that because of the pandemic. But now it's become a regular habit for me. Once a month, a box shows up. It's 
comes freeze dry, you know, it's in packed with ice and it's got fish somewhere from Norway. I don't know. The point is that we've created new habits and we had actually a long time to develop those new habits. You also saw other parts of the food tech world adapt, right? So restaurants couldn't seat people inside. So what do they do? They pivot towards more takeout and delivery. But that's, again, people being adaptable. You saw the rise of ghost kitchens or dark kitchens, which is commercial kitchens, basically. And a restaurant can create a delivery-only concept by leasing out space in the same facility. But that way, the restaurant doesn't have to go through and commit to building out a space and all the infrastructure around that, you know, leasing a building. It can just lease the space it needs, and it's all set up for delivery. So I think we're actually seeing a lot of adaptability that happened really quickly, especially in the food tech world, because everybody's got to eat. Chris, some of the examples that you've listed there, they're things that we're seeing in Australia as well. We're seeing them in parts of the world. And they sound a little bit, for lack of a better term, simple, right? Like a ghost kitchen or a dark kitchen or, you know, opening up my direct-to-consumer channels. They sound almost like no-brainers in a way. Like these are the things that we should have been doing all the time and how revolutionary is that? But in their simplicity, they're almost a revolution because it seems like businesses are really feeling more free to diversify how they structure themselves to be able to make sure that consumers can attain what they need to attain, that they can access it, that it's affordable, that it's convenient. It's almost like the benefits are being innovated on, whether it's in retail or whether it's in food technology, in lots of other truly exciting ways that sometimes feel a little bit like science fiction. Well, so I'm always hesitant to call something simple because to me, it's simple to do a podcast right? Because you just get a bunch of people on the phone, you record them. But the reason that it's simple is because somebody else has done a lot of the heavy lifting. And so there were tools that were available, right? If you just think about just the software required to create a direct-to-consumer channel, right? A business, which would normally maybe send to a distributor, which would then send out to different you know, retailers, that's one line of business, but instead is getting orders from all over the world. But now there are web interfaces to make it easier, mobile apps so that people can order from their phone, right? And then there's infrastructure software to do logistics and manage delivery of these things, like all of those things kind of came together and they were accelerated by the pandemic. Again, because people had to do it, they didn't have as many retail options or real world options open to them. Uh, to the point of like, you know, other side, like automated vending machines, that's another example of just sort of the technology getting to the point to where they could execute on it, right? Like a company I really like to write about is this one called Yokai Express and they make uh, hot ramen, thanks to robotics and internet of things software. So like the machine can monitor itself and tell you, make sure the food is cold, kept cold at the right time and verify that, right? And can accept different forms of electronic payment. Someone like Yokai can come along and what they do is they make all this delicious ramen uh, in bowls and freeze it. And then they store it in this machine and the machine holds, I think somewhere between 40 and 80 bowls of ramen. And when you order it, it reconstitutes it through some proprietary heating and steam technology. And a couple of minutes later, you have a steaming hot bowl of ramen delivered to you. Now, if you consider setting these up at an airport or a college dorm or an office building or some place where there's high traffic, it sounds kind of simple, like, oh, we get hot ramen from a machine, but it's because so many of the other complex things have happened prior to that. And I think as a result, you're going to see a lot more of these. The pandemic sort of pushed people into this, but then they're going to realize like, oh, 
you know, a ramen shop is going to be like, wait, I don't need to build an entire restaurant to get my food, or I can have a store within a store. There's a company called Chowbotics that just got bought by DoorDash and they have a salad making robot because the idea suddenly of having a salad bar doesn't sound like a really good idea anymore, right? The far reaching effects into how we get our food yet remain to be seen. But the idea of technology rising to create new opportunities and fill voids we didn't know existed or were created by the pandemic is going to be, you know, a story that we read throughout 2021. It's a super exciting space as well, particularly like I keep talking about automated vending, but we're seeing it with coffee, salads, smoothies. I mean, it's just far reaching and it's definitely something that we play in, but we could be doing so much more with. When we talk about robotics and automation and self-driving vending machines, it's very different for people to grasp in a lot of ways versus what they're used to. And so, Siggy, I'd love to go back to what you were saying around, you know, those predictive models that we have that are bound to fail and how that works when we're disrupted with solutions. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was listening to the story about the salad it's incredible, right? Like when we remain well oriented towards innovation and discovery, and we're in that sort of creative mindset rather than just in this execution mindset, the rate at which we can evolve our predictive models of the world is shocking. But we tend not to do that as a society, again, because we build these predictive models that as long as they help us have a feeling of remaining in control, we remain in execution mode. And there's less of a push for us to shift into this sort of creative mindset that produces all of these kinds of things. That's why I think it's so interesting for the possibility of us to kind of, again, take this moment to become more consciously aware of the benefit of this mode that we're currently in and learn to apply it more consciously and proactively. We can innovate the way that we organize ourselves as a society as fast as we innovate technology. So one of the things I've been writing about and not as informed as you is just the idea of habituation, right? Like there's the the old saw that it takes 27 days of something to create a new habit. And now that we've been in lockdown for just about a year, have people for the most part just created new habits? Have they rewired their brain is what I guess my question is. You know, the first part of that is that there are people who are naturally very resistant to change. You know, we did a study when the pandemic first hit, and we found that about 65% of the population was really ardently intent on going back to normal. And about 35% of the population at the time was like, no, we're open to change. We're open to difference. Some people really want to habituate, to get into patterns. They want to be able to stabilize their behavior as quickly as possible. And to the extent that they can quickly identify something that works for them, they'll lock onto it. And so on one hand, you've got a group of people who are those change resistors, and you need to transition them to like a new track. And I think that it can happen pretty quickly to the extent that the new behaviors produce a feeling of control for them and stability. And they become useful predictors of experience in a way that foments a feeling of comfort, control, and safety for them. I think it's really interesting thinking about that part of the population that's just less resistant and more automatically leans into the white piece of paper and the ambiguity and the ability to drive change in the world and to innovate. Chris, I'm going to go back to you for a sec. Some of those things that you've seen in the food tech world, because obviously it's incredibly relevant for us as Mars Wrigley as a business. I'm wondering if you've seen any differences between the markets around the world. So innovation is happening around the world, but North America, United States in particular, has sort of an entrepreneurial bent that's sort of ingrained. Everybody wants to start their own business, right? I was talking uh, yesterday with a founder in Berlin, and she was talking about just sort of the struggles with European 
markets and the ability to get innovation there because of resistance to change. But we're seeing definitely innovation. And one good example of that, I think, is this concept of cashierless checkout, which is the idea where you walk into a store, you grab what you want, and you leave and you get charged automatically. Amazon kind of pioneered it with the Go store. But now you're seeing there's a bunch of startups and they're really around the world. So in New Zealand, there's a company called Imager and they do smart shopping carts and baskets that use computer vision. So as you're putting stuff inside, it keeps track of what you're buying. They're opening up in Japan. There's a company called Zippin in the United States and Grabango. And then the one I just mentioned called Nomitri over in Berlin. But you're seeing these all over the world. And the same thing with delivery robots in Russia, you have Yandex has Yandex Mobile, right? And these are all like cooler sized robots that autonomously or semi-autonomously wheel around sidewalks to deliver people burritos or lattes or groceries. You have Yandex in Russia. You have Panasonic starting to test things out in Japan, Wuwa Brothers in Korea. In Istanbul, there's not one, but two different robot companies there, Delivers AI and um, another one called Byzero and Starship in the U.S. as well on college campuses. So there are technologies that are sort of sprouting up globally. And some of it probably sounds incredibly innovative and futuristic. The question that I have on that is how important is the user experience in all of that? Because some of these things are very new for people. They really sort of take the control away from the individual and automate, which is awesome for creating ease and convenience and added freedoms. But they are a different experience, whether they're shopping or they're entertaining themselves or they're eating something even. Yeah. So, you know, user experience is really key. And that's why in the cashierless checkout space, you actually see a lot of different approaches, right? Zippin creates a store like an Amazon Go, which uses cameras and sensors to track you. You scan your phone as you walk in. It keeps track of you. But Caper, another company out of Toronto, they put all of that smarts into the shopping cart and was like, okay, this is easier for people to understand. All they have to do is take their cart and there's a screen on cart. You don't have to do anything different. And then an imager from New Zealand goes one step further and was like, well, we don't even want a touch screen on our carts because that's going to freak people out. So we're not even doing that. And then you go further down and Nomitri has moved it all to your phone. And all they give a retailer is an arm that you screw onto the shopping cart and then you stick your phone on it and then they'll use the phone's camera, right? So which one of these solutions people will adopt is yet to be seen. But the good news is that people are trying a lot of different ways and you know the market's gonna figure out the best solution for it. Yeah, technology is going to increase our ability to be more what I call cognitively ergonomic. Humans, we're learning in the way that we process information and make decisions, there's some natural neurodiversity but it's not infinite. You could basically think of it as there are people who are navigating the world primarily via their instincts, people who are navigating the world via sort of social cognition, and then sort of rational thought. And so I'm very excited about the possibility of adaptive technology that allows us to flexibly provide a user experience that maximally aligns with the mindset of the user. Perfecting it as we go. Siggy, one of the really interesting studies that we've seen, which was conducted by YSC and the IMD Business School, was looking at historical crises. And it showed that during that time, there were 9 to 10% of businesses that didn't just survive, they thrived due to a few different things. But one of them was around driving better efficiency, of course, clarity of what they were going after during that time, but then also empowerment or what they called, you know, decentralized business models. So really enabling associates to come up with those solutions to drive the change that we needed to see in the business and empowering them. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting topic. And it relates to sort of the idea of neurodiversity and these different brain types that are out there in the population. Humans vary on this dimension of being interested in ideas and then interested in accomplishing things, like sort of the taskmaster to the kind of just wanderer and wanderer. When a business has kind of instinctively organized itself so that their personnel are nicely balanced along that continuum, they do a good job at being able to adapt because you're dealing with a nice proportion of the workforce that is inclined towards having that kind of fluid, creative, flexible thought process that can innovate and think of new ways of orienting towards problems and challenges. And then on the other side, you have these kinds of more results-oriented type of people, the charger and the manager, that are really good at facilitating execution of these new ideas. When a sort of team of people are balanced in this regard, they're highly adaptive. Oftentimes, companies get imbalanced in this way. And if they're too loaded towards the execution side, then that works well as long as there's not a forced requirement to adapt. And then on the other side, if you have a company that's overly loaded on this kind of fluid idea side of the spectrum, then you get people who might be creative geniuses that are coming up with all these brilliant ideas, but they don't have the executional wherewithal to efficiently sort of manifest them in the world. And so when you were mentioning about businesses that kind of had that distributed sort of management process or approach, then that kind of helps to promote that kind of a balance. But I think in the future, we'll work towards better understanding this neurodiversity and more consciously and proactively making sure that it's present. It seems like our understanding of the psychology, the sociology behind everything that we do is advancing as naturally you would expect it to. So we're understanding ourselves better and therefore our associates and therefore our business and our potential. How do you feel that this is different outside of that sort of natural evolution of knowledge? How is that different in this decade that we're coming into? And what are some of the real turning points for the understanding that we have or the behaviors that we're likely to see based on the context that we're in in this decade? Well, right now, because our sort of recipe book for how to do things has been upended in many ways, we're sort of now moving into a time period where these more creative fluid thinking types of individuals are going to play a very important role. You know, those types of outside-the-box thinkers can be very disruptive to a system when we're in a lockdown, more executional mode, where we feel like our recipe works very well, we don't need to mess with it, and we just want to execute, execute, execute. But when the system collapses in one form or another, and we sort of move into this place where now, you know, we're kind of having to recreate ourselves, sort of like the phoenix rising from the ashes, that more creative, fluid, flexible thinking part of the neurodiversity become really, really important. And they sort of rise in prominence and sort of take the lead as people who innovate our way to another period or epoch of stability. We're moving now into this stage where that kind of creativity and flexibility and openness is going to be paid attention to more and valued more. And I think one of the great things that are going to come from that is we're going to look at a lot of our old predictive models and we're going to be like, why are we still doing that? Once we're in a certain stability state, we let things kind of run until they break. And so we miss opportunities to improve on things just because we're not proactively trying to improve on them as we are in science. 
that's what I'm kind of hoping is that not only do we go into this epoch of proactive, focused innovation and creativity and sort of redesigning ourselves, but that we carry that forward indefinitely and make it a more matter-of-fact part of our sort of balanced collective in the way that we do things. Just like having a balanced business that has that nice diversity of brain types so we can stay fluid and adaptable and innovative. In Foresight, we're often asked for our predictions as if we have a crystal ball. I wish that we did. I'd love to hear what yours is around, you know, what you think is coming into the future. So if you think further out into the sort of 2026 horizon, you know, what is one of the biggest shifts that you think that we'll see in that space of adaptability and businesses really sort of flipping things upside down and trying new and exciting things? What's sort of your big bet around what we're likely to see in that future? Well, as our social systems are becoming less coherent, we're going to go through the turmoil that's associated with that. There'll be a lot of people who are trying to very quickly reestablish sort of social norms. And then I think in concert with that, technology is going to bring forward opportunities for us to personalize and customize product spaces and market spaces in a way that really adapt to the neurodiversity landscape. We're starting to really better understand the meaningful aspects of neurodiversity. We'll be able to make a world that's much better aligned with how the brain naturally works and how people make decisions and how people navigate the paces of their lives. And as we do that, life will feel a lot more comfortable for people. The moments of our lives where we feel mentally frustrated or strained or stressed should diminish as a natural part of being able to become more cognitively ergonomic for the people in the world. Very well put. Chris? I'm not going to lie. I stole this prediction from somebody who said it yesterday. He was the CEO of Zippin, but I thought it was actually pretty dead on, so I'm going to share it with you. Which is, I do think that over the next two years, a lot of the stores that you encounter at airports or stadiums will be cashierless. You know, if you think about places where you just want to get in and get out quickly, I think that you'll also see them in more hotels. And on the vending machine, which I know you like, Joe, I think that we're going to see a lot more co-branded robotic vending machines pop up in places because, again, they provide fresh food around the clock in an unattended way that is novel and new and people are going to have to get used to the idea. But once they do, that sort of that co-branding is going to help, right? So if there's a Domino's pizza branded vending machine, you're not going to worry so much about like, well, why am I getting pizza from a vending machine? You're just going to be like, oh, that's Domino's. I get it. I know what I'm going to get. Or a Snickers vending machine. Or a Snickers vending machine. Yes. Served up, you know, maybe a deep fried Snickers vending machine for us here in the U.S. (laughs) Thank you everyone for joining us today for the first exploration that we've done into the five shifts in the Transform Next Normal on adaptability. If the shift speaks to anything, it's the fact that human beings are the most flexible species on the planet. Our human compulsion is to explore, to discover, to find better ways to do things. So as we look towards the next five years and out towards the next decade, what opportunities come to your mind? I'll leave you with some of my thoughts. Firstly, as Siggy put it so well, how can we innovate ourselves? 
How can we use self-reflection, self-betterment to better understand our consumers and how they're adapting their homes, their lives, how they're empowering themselves? Secondly, as we see this influx of growth in new business models, routes to market, rethinking what retail is, what is a place of purchase when you've got an automatic vending machine roaming around you as a robot, the world is changing and we're going to see this exploration, this transformation of innovation it's going to be new to the world. So imagine how the consumer is going to feel. How can we take them on that journey by putting them first at the ideation? Ideate around what is ideal for them? What is the ideal physical experience, starting with how they explore um, and flex within their environment? How do we put them first in our thinking? And as Chris said it so well, create adaptive solutions because we're not going to get it right the first time and that's okay. We need to keep learning around what the consumer is experiencing well, not so well, and learn from our industry peers. And lastly, we see whole industries flip their model upside down. Distribution, supply chains, how do we review what is still true for people, especially now that their whole lives are flexing, their environments are changing? Is there a better way that we could do things? Is there a different way that we could make, distribute and design our products? If adaptability is showing us anything, it's that the world can look different now if we want it to. This is Joe. Stay curious. (laughs) 